what are you about to do? I'm about to sit out here and uh, call Parag. <laughs> Alright, well, I'm leaving. Alright. <laughs> I should say not forever. I'm leaving. <laughs> I think one of the greatest aspects of this podcast is the fact that I get to talk with people from so many different walks of life. I mean, that's the whole point of this thing, right? But I mean, it really is the best part. I love meeting people, even if that means that meeting them is simply talking to them on the phone. So I work with this lady who's actually the mom of one of my friends from high school who told a former graduate of the high school I work at that I was the guy to talk to about any homecoming question, and she was correct. It also just so happens to turn out that this guy has a pretty cool story and likes to play one of my favorite games, Phone Tag. This is Dr. Paragupta. Please leave me a message. Record your message after the tone. Dr. Parag Gupta and I are from the same town. He graduated from the same high school I did, but only about three or four years before me. Now, after graduating as a valedictorian of his class, young Parag was awarded a scholarship to Vanderbilt University, where he completed a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in engineering. He then headed to Chicago, where he worked on a PhD at Northwestern University. For most people who end up with doctor in front of their name, the journey there is tough enough, but it's one that they survived. Dr. Gupta's journey, however, took some detours and actually almost fell apart. Instead of collapsing, however, he muscled through, he completed his degree, had a few scrapes and bruises along the way, but it allowed for an encouraging story to be created for those who tend to excel at everything they do anyway. Sometimes we think that those people don't ever struggle, you know, like they're almost not even human. It's like they're computers with lungs. But Dr. Gupta's struggles prove that the stress attached to such high-pressure areas of life are felt by even those who seem to take everything in stride. After going a few rounds and trying to get our schedules to cooperate, the stars and the earth and everything else finally aligned. Now, even though we're from the same town, we've never met. And I was pleasantly surprised to find that from the get-go, our time on the phone felt like two old friends who picked up in the middle of an old conversation. And it was such a pleasant surprise. Remember, I've set out to find those people from all walks of life. I want them to impress upon me their stories, from those who get along to get along to those who make the waves that move the world forward. Everyone from who's who to who's that. I want to meet them all. Remember college, or at the very least, do you remember high school? I know that's a loaded question, but anyway, just go with me. You remember going to class or having that weight on your shoulders to complete work that you really didn't want to do instead of hanging out or watching movies or playing video games or whatever it is that you actually wanted to do? For some people, school is that thing. But I'm willing to wager that we gravitate towards the hobbies or the work that we like because the things that we like are the things we're naturally good at. Things tend to work out that way, you know what I mean? Naturally. Things we genuinely struggle with aren't the things that we typically gravitate towards. Now, I love sports, but I'm nowhere near built like an athlete. Not too many 5'8 professional athletes out there, you know? You may want to argue with me and say, oh, no, there's plenty of sub-six-foot athletes who have made it big, and those people give me hope. Of course, they have talent and work ethic, and when it comes to their world, I don't. However, I do have a natural aptitude for writing and a genuine love for storytelling. So I've gravitated toward that arena throughout my life. 
Now, mix my love for all things competition and all things wordology, and here I am in charge of handling athletics PR in my day job. Natural ability plus work ethic. Maya Angelou once famously said, nothing will work unless you do. And whether or not we want to admit it, this maxim fits every nook and cranny of our daily lives. For Dr. Parag Gupta, he learned this lesson the hard way. He obviously had a natural aptitude and tended to work hard. But one thing I've noticed as a person who's worked on two degrees is that there's a track that you're supposed to follow when it comes to school. Once you're done with part A, you travel on to part B. And when you're a professional student, much like many PhD students tend to be, you tackle each part step by step, level by level. And once you're done with that part, that level, you go to the next. But what happens when the hurdles in life snag you and slow you down? If you're Dr. Gupta, you do some soul searching, work longer than you should have, and eventually have a TEDx talk on it, right? You finish up at Northwestern University, have a stint as a dean at Columbia University where you learn more about yourself, and you eventually have a phone conversation with me. Nah, maybe the last part isn't true of everyone, but I'm very glad it was for Parag, excuse me, Dr. Gupta. So this is, uh, this is I'm, I'm really quite excited about this. Uh, the last time I sat and talked about myself to any extent, there was also on a podcast. Yeah. So I've given, uh, I've given one formal interview and then the TED Talk you saw, certainly. But at that time in my life, especially in 2014, everybody was just fascinated by this PhD student that wouldn't quit. And uh, I haven't really talked about it much after the fact, so... About to kind say, of an interesting thing, though. Yeah, we've been we've been probably what we've been since 2014. It's been almost a full four years since. So there's probably yeah. So probably, I gave that talk actually. It's four and a half years since I gave that talk, which was in April of uh, 2014. So it's been you know four months. April the 12th, maybe. So we're almost yeah. exactly at four months since four years and six months. So, so right now, which where, is really neat. Where are you calling me from right now? Okay, I am in Stamford, Connecticut. That's with an M, as in Mansi. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, that's a poor Archer joke. <laughs> um, M, M is in man instead of N is in Nancy. Right. And uh, that's the city, one of the first cities when you leave metropolitan New York, if you take the metro train, um, which is kind of like the business commuter line. Right. If you take that uh, north, it takes about... 20 minutes to go from um, Harlem, 125th, and in Amsterdam, approximately, all the way up to Stanford takes about 20 minutes. So okay. that's the proximity of where I am, and I work in Wilton, uh, Connecticut, which is a little bit further into Connecticut. But this is all considered, like, greater New York City area, I would say, because there's a good number of people that live in Stanford and commute into the city using the train and then driving, so... We're in that spot where we cater to the Upper West Side, Upper East Side, right. Harlem, Queens, Washington Heights, that type of thing. So. When I think of Harlem, all of the, the, I guess, the cultural interactions I've had with it throughout my 34 years on the earth has been everything from mm-hmm. the Harlem Globetrotters to um, African-American literature in the Renaissance to Hamilton, of sure. course, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it, it's one gigantic hodgepodge of mismatched history in my mind sitting down here, down in Clinton, Mississippi. Yeah, it's actually even more interesting for me on a personal level. Uh, you Probably if you did any research on me, I don't know if you know, I was a dean at Columbia University in in New York, and it actually sits within uh, the the area of Harlem, and there was a huge, uh, there was one of the biggest 
student protests slash riots that ever existed in the United States history happened at Columbia University in 1968, where the university was trying to expand a gym into the Morningside Heights. Um, there's this park there. And there's a there's a sheer drop off between the east edge of Northwestern or sorry Columbia University and Morningside Park, so uh, there was some real big racial kind of um, integration issues. They wanted to have a separate entrance for the people that lived on Morningside Park side, which was in their mind like kind of uh, segregationary. And right. there were some other issues with the with the administration in general. So Columbia University had one of the biggest protests from the history of American universities still to this day, and they took over the administrative buildings. It lasted eight days. They brought in the New York uh, police. They brought in federal marshals. It was It's one of these things that I was just amazed to hear about. The reality of the thing is that university has iron gates that surround it. It's basically a rectangle. Yeah, It's no longer that way. Columbia is the second biggest landowner in, in this, um, on the island of Manhattan after the Catholic Church. <laughs> and we've expanded our medical center and research facilities, and then we have you know, our law schools and uh, expanded a part of the campus. And so we're no longer in this rectangle from 113th to 122nd between Broadway and Amsterdam. We're much bigger. Um, but there was a time, you know, up until the mid-90s, maybe even uh, late 80s, mid-90s, that they closed that gate every night. And there's a sister school to Columbia known as Barnard, which is kind mm-hmm. of the women's college that's mm-hmm. affiliated. And to this day, they still close their gate. Uh, but it's it's more so because that's that's a women's college, kind yeah. of like Harvard and Radcliffe. Right. Um, like uh, Vanderbilt had that situation with Peabody, and yeah. then Vanderbilt absorbed Peabody School of Education, and okay. Harvard absorbed Radcliffe. But Barnard is still its independent university administration versus Columbia. And this is kind of the upper, upper west side, because upper west side starts from 77th Street up. But, you know, that, that region is very, very safe now. Like, I felt comfortable going out at 2 a.m. Yeah. by myself. Yeah. But this is, it would have been unheard of in the 90s or 80s. So it's really gotten a lot better and sort of gentrified. But, again, that's a function of money and Columbia's influence on the neighborhood. Yeah, I was about to say we could get into it hours of, of conversation right there just about yeah, gentrification know, we, we, and this. They really that'd be a great one. I, I might need to hold on to you for that one down the road. In his TEDx talk, Dr. Gupta opens up with the fact that his parents were immigrants from India, and his adolescent life reflected the traditions of his parents' home country, as well as the fruit of his own efforts in maneuvering the life of a teenager in Mississippi during the nineties. I mean, it's it's crazy. Being from Mississippi, we know how how dynamic and, and oh, yeah. luscious the the history can be. I'm at a loss for a better descriptor, but it's a very complex state with a lot of interesting perspectives, yeah. and I think it gets downplayed quite a bit on the national level for very good, obvious reasons. Right. But there's some parts to Mississippi that I that I absolutely love and yeah. am and, and joyful to reconnect with when I have an opportunity to come back home. Yeah, it's so an it's an easy target for a lot, but it's I'm glad you used the word luscious too. That was in that was the one of the uh, <laughs> words we used in the book tonight that my daughter read. She's like, "What does this word mean?" And I was oh. like, "Oh, well, let's let's talk about the word luscious." So I'm glad you got to use it. <laughs> <laughs> I probably have never used that word in the correct context <laughs> in my entire life ah. until today. But I was I was going to say my parents still very much enjoy living in, in Mississippi. They moved down there in, in October of 1982, and they're still very happy to 
live in the house that you know my dad designed and built back then and and they're just happy living a retired fulfilled life uh in a community that their sons grew up in and and one that's really treated them with a lot of respect and in a world where you know a lot of things are politically um unstable let's say Mm -hmm. uh there's still some comfort to know that clinton mississippi itself stands as a this this beacon of 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 true humanity uh there's never been any sort of um occasion or incident where i felt like i wasn't welcome and i think that that is is not as common as one would think uh coming from the south and especially a state like mississippi with the with the uh, type of reputation it might hold in some people's minds not to say it doesn't exist i just right. have been very fortunate not to have it happen at a very broad scale I mean, I'm not saying everything was cotton candy and lollipops. No. Right? I mean, there was there were times, you know, certainly when you're younger and you go through adolescence that I think every adolescent experiences some measure of uncomfortableness and and awkwardness and, and maybe some, you know, people that don't like them or make fun of them. I, I think it happens to everybody to some extent. And then there's insecurities that go along with that. And that's yeah. part of being young. Yeah. Um, but and maybe, maybe, arguably, one could say I got an unfair share of that, but I don't think necessarily it was based on the characteristics of Mississippi as it's perceived as a whole. I think it was just, you know, very much a localized phenomenon. And for the most part, our family and all the other families that were distinct minorities, in my opinion, were treated very well and with a good amount of respect uh, because we showed that respect to others and then that love and respect was reciprocated back. Well, I like that you brought up... At least has been my experience. Yeah, I like that you brought up and used the term distinct minorities because, you know, you think Mississippi, you think, like I said, you know, white kids and black kids. But there's Mm -hmm. there's, you know, the 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 to steal a very horrible term from Edward Said, you know, the others. There's the. Yeah. You know, which I always laugh to when we talk about what does someone from Asia look like? They're like, Mm -hmm. like, well, you know, it's it's one of the largest continents on the planet, you know, there's not just one prototypical type looking Asian, so you can't just pigeonhole yourself there. But it's it's not, you know, the binary of the Mississippi division. So let me ask you this real quick. Right. So so growing up yeah. as um, the the not white kid and the not black kid, yeah, where did you where did you ever find yourself when when the the talk of division was brought up? Because you said you graduated in the late '90s, so. So going yeah. from 10 years old to 18, I mean, that was that was in the heart of, the, you know, of a 90s kid. That was Bill and Monica. That was yeah. after Rodney King. That was all that. So where did you where did you find it yourself was, uh, in the in sync era? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, mean, you know, I was yeah. friends with Lance Bass, by the way, as a side note. But oh, yeah, uh, he, grew, he grew up down the street from us. Um, for those of you who are listening that may not know. But um, the point is, is that I, I want to touch back on you know, take this back kind of historically for a moment. The the initial big immigration move for at least people in the Indian subcontinent happened in the United States in the mid-70s or so, maybe early to mid-70s. And and by the early 80s, there was a good number of of those individuals that lived in really populous areas of the country. So you're talking about California, certainly Houston, Texas is a big area, Edison, New Jersey is a big locale. In New York City, and my my father actually did his master's degree in, in Canada, University of Waterloo, after attending the Indian Institute of Technology, 
in India. And so he was already in Canada for about eight years, starting in 1971, approximately. He married my mother. And then my brother was born in Canada before they moved to New York. So I was actually born in New York. And my parents had had uh, almost a decade of experience in the Western Hemisphere already before we decided to come down into Mississippi, which is, as you can tell, was a massive cultural difference just Absolutely. because the North and the South are so different. But uh, the reality are, compounded to that was that there weren't many people from the Indian subcontinent in Mississippi at all. And I, people have asked me to put a figure on it. I would think less than um, 500 families of Indian origin um, in Mississippi at that time. So around 1982, you could say maybe 2,500 people in the entire state. And, and so it's weird because uh, for me, growing up, I, it was a very strict Indian culture. I, my parents were, um, I, I'll, I'll say one thing. It's sometimes when you're, when you're the child of an immigrant family that's a first-generation family, those parents tend to be a little bit stricter than they would be if you were in your home country. Right, right. But I like to say that I was I was living, and I noted this in my TEDx talk, that I felt like I was living in a in two worlds, right? <laughs> I was living in India at home in a very strict environment, and then I was going out when I became school-aged into this massively different southern culture. And I never really thought of myself as any different because my parents never taught us to think that way. Um, my parents are obviously very, uh, uh, like, liberal in the sense that they were willing to take a chance and move their kids uh, to, a, to a better place that they thought would help in their prosperity for the immediate family and the families that were still in India. My dad is a patriarch of our family. He's the eldest son. So you're looking at a scenario where you have very classical Indian approaches to, to cultural basis, the, the language itself, the emphasis on education, the emphasis on culture, the emphasis on respect and humanity. Um, and that really helped me, you know, guide my way through even my younger years. And, and I had an elder brother, which kind of helped because he was two years older. And he was, he was very loving to me, especially during those very critical, super adolescent years. So yeah. ages from four to ten, right? And, and the, the good thing about being the younger sibling is oftentimes the mistakes that a parent might make or the family might make or the elder child might make in their growth development as an adolescent, you get to learn from those mistakes and, and do a little bit better. Uh, and it, it helped a lot that I was kind of um, very gregarious, right? I've always yeah. been this kind of strong personality, and I made friends quickly. And, you know, at that time in the 80s, it was, it was a very pleasant place to live. The defense industry was doing really well, and the defense industry uh, was focused in the South. It still is to a large extent to this day. And my dad worked in that area, and he was well-respected as an electromechanical engineer. And so things were really good. It's just that, again, the biggest thing that I can cite is that going into the city of Clinton, outside of the walls of that house, was a big, big change every day. Yeah. And so there, there's a bit of acclimation that takes place in certain at some point, you get more comfortable with it. Um, one of the big benefits I think that it's not really recognized as often as it should be is that when you live in a college town, and we grew up in Clinton, Mississippi, which is the home for Mississippi College, right. one of the oldest co-ed institutions in this country, and you know, very, very strong Christian moral basis and, and educational the, basis. The first university to issue a four-year degree to a woman, might I add. 
That's right. Right. So you're talking about uh, a community that, even though it might be in the center of Mississippi, right outside of Jackson, was actually populated by a large number of intellects and intellectual kids that that came out of those, you know, marriages and unions and 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 a culture that was really kind of uh, embracing to what it was to go through the process of being becoming an American. Yeah. And I, I can't speak to my parents because certainly, you know, my mom's transition is different than my dad's experience of work. You know, my mom not knowing English when she first came to Canada and then becoming fluent that, you know, as an adult is, is a big challenge. It's yeah. a difficult language, um, as you could ask any entomologist about. Yeah. Um, so so luckily we we were able to pick up on some of those nuances of American culture and really embrace the best. I, I guess a lot of people say that they have a healthy balance of Eastern and Western philosophy when they grow up as first-generation immigrants from the Indian subcontinent. And I really do think that that was, for the most part, a very positive thing. I mean, there's some negatives that we can talk about philosophically, like the, the inability for me to speak fluently in my native tongue or the tongue of my, my mother's native tongue, let's say. Um, after a while, because the Senate structure is difficult, uh, right. the 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 kind of full buy-in of Americanism and materialism and independence and like I'm 15 now, Dad, where's my car? Type of thing. Right. There's some negatives there, which I'm sure you can understand. And absolutely, just the level of perspective that we give and we assign to individualism in this country versus that of a joint family, joint structure environment that oftentimes exists in the East. So there's some kind of general conflict there um, that you just kind of have to resolve in your own brain. But what that ended up doing was put me in a position where I had to make deeply intellectual decisions maybe at a younger age than most. And it's tough even for my parents to this day to understand that, yeah, I, we, we know we put you in this environment, but you should still should have done better. And my argument has always been to some extent that, you know, <laughs> to even have done this well, I think, is, 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 is a mark in my favor. Is fairly, it's, it's a pretty good job. We, we, could, we could give you a, a check mark in that, eh, you did all right, Mr. Ph.D., you're good to go. Well, so, so that's, the, well, that's the thing, is that, that, that Ph.D. struggle was difficult. And if we have time, we can, we can talk about it. But certainly my parents are, should be afforded all of the respect that they deserve for making sure that the path that their kids followed was at least wholesome, yeah. right? I mean, kids do stupid things, right? Yeah. But we never went out and smoked and drank and did any of that stuff in high school like a lot of those people did. Uh, we made wholesome friends. Like, my best friend lives three doors away from me, and still to this day, I keep in touch with him. His name is Benny Nash. And I had some really good, strong um, role models and people that I could look up to and and progress with. Uh, again, the emphasis on education was so, so important. And I'm glad mom, you know, sat us down in the summer vacations and made us do the math workbook for the three years, or the three grades above us. Right. right. So there's those elements that like, you never be able to take away, um, uh, that you'll never be able to discretize and say, yeah, this was done good and this was done bad, because as a whole, we were just trying to, I guess, to use a phrase from modern day, live our best lives, right? right? Make the best decisions you can with the resources you have at that time. And then you can't sit in regret because if you sit in regret, then uh, you're impeding your own uh, capability to be happy in some aspects. So 
you know, life is dynamic. It's not a very easily definable thing or like, you know, tell us all the struggle or tell us all the good things. It's, it's a mix. And yeah, I, I think if you talk to anybody about this, they would say the same about themselves. I think you hit the nail on the head there, too. And I think that's where there's a big struggle from, you know, we, we've talked about this binary division that's here in the country. And with, you know, the midterm elections that happened yesterday, there's a clear division that's still going on from both sides of the aisle. I think that that sure. both the red, both the blue, both the Democrat, both the Republican, both the black, both the white, both the north, and the south. I think that we're 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 spending a lot of time trying to blanket policy some things to where mm-hmm. I, I think we sometimes miss the fact that each individual needs has the right and deserves the chance to live their best life. And I think that your parents, you know, you, you are a very living testimony and it came out of your own mouth right there, showing a little bit of praise and honor back to your parents of the fact that they had their standards that they were going to hold their family to. They had their own standards they wanted each individual son to live up to. And it wasn't just a blanket policy. It was, let's work on you as the person. And then also, I guess it kind of filtered back into you having that, like you said, a a small India inside your own home. But then when you go out with all of your friends, it's, and, and now you're back in Clinton. So yeah, I mean, there's elements of that that still exist to this day. I mean, I'm a 38-year-old man. When I go back home to Clinton, Mississippi, yeah. you know, I, I come back into the house at 11 p.m. I mean, it's not – there was a time where, where I was very salty about that. But then yeah. there's this time where you start realizing how much your parents really do worry about you, um, especially when you're still living in kind of a culture that's not your own. And right. so the comfort level of your parents becomes then your own first priority. And and it's weird when you start like thinking along the lines of the people that raised you and how much anger or maybe animosity there was for certain instances at certain times in your life. And then you grow into a little bit of maturity, you at least can understand from where they were coming. Um, I'm not saying you're necessarily going to go back and believe everything that no. they did was right, but certainly there's a balance between the way you acted when you were 15 and, yeah. and the way that you approach things when you're, when you're 38. I think too, I, the, the responsibility falls on our shoulders is us growing up, you know, you're 38, I'm 34. I, and I am realizing those reasons why my mom, why my dad said, yes, you can do this. No, you can't do that. I really encourage you not to do this, but if you do that, it's going to be your fault. You know, your tail, you're, you're paying for it. I think, I think we sometimes forget that the kids today that are growing up, they need to go through that same phase that we went through so that when they reach 30, 31, 32, they can have that aha moment of, oh, man, they were right. Well, yeah, but that's part of what life is. Yeah. Right? You're, you're always going to yeah. have this disconnect between two generations, and the, the biggest disconnect between those two generations obviously happens between a parent and a child. So uh, to, to make an a priori statement saying that, like, hey, man, this is the path or this is the right way and the wrong way in all cases is not a very uh, apropos way to go about things, I would say. I agree. I, I say the word. I talked about this earlier today with a friend of mine. I think that's very a very arrogant outlook to have on life, that we are suddenly the ones in the vast array of history that suddenly has the answer. <laughs> right. But, I mean, <laughs> I think part of that is because parents are also scared. Right. So, oh, yeah. Oh, oh trust uh, me. Trust know, me. I learning. look in the mirror and I see and, that parent every day and I'm sitting there going, you have no yeah. clue what you're doing. <laughs> so they, I mean, when you look back at it, my, my mother had me when she was uh, 29 years old. My, my father was 33. Um, 
and and I'm 38 now, and I'm single, and I'm not married, and I don't have kids. But if you think about the decision-making process they made, like, mm-hmm. five years ago, uh, you know, based on the age I am right now, or 10 years ago in my mom's case, yeah. it's, uh, it's kind of eye-opening because nobody really knew what they were doing in all cases, right? And then you're talking about a family that's the only family, yeah. no extended family, yeah. no moms or dads. It was just them, it's, and it's kind of them against the world, and, you know, everything hinges on their decision-making process. So you can't really hate on I hate a pretty strong word, but you can't really disparage some of the those, those actions mm-hmm. again, like I noted before. Mm-hmm. I agree. But what you mentioned there about making your own decision making process really—that's my number three. Um, it, it feeds into my number three uh, mantra of life, which is that it's okay to make mistakes. But the real tragedy is when you don't have an, a reflection point to understand that some of those mistakes were your own fault, right? Or when you sit there and say, hey, man, all of these bad things keep happening to me and not take any ownership of it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and for a long time, I didn't do that. I still don't do that to some extent for some of those things. But I like to reflect on that's my number three mantra in life. Like, it's not you're not always right. Right. And to realize that you're not uh, makes the mark of the beginning of maturity. I think I agree. It, it gives you a sense of freedom. That's right. Yeah, uh, I like I like that you because you know you always hear it's the, it's the little coffee cup T shirt kind of thing. You know, you should always learn from the mistakes in life. Oh yeah, but you said something that sometimes you, it is your fault, and I think like you said yeah. the, the maturity aspect of owning that so that yes yeah, sometimes it is my fault, yeah. and it's okay. And if you learn from it, then it's great. But if you don't, then it's just a wasted opportunity. And the real kicker is a lot of the times it's your fault. It's not <laughs> just like, you know, the world's here to dump on you or anything, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. you know, you've got to own that stupid mistake when, you, when you've had the fourth beer and, and you stumble home drunk or something. Mm-hmm. That's, that's your own fault, right? You, it is. You either need to learn how to monitor that better or you need to stay away from the substances that, that may not be compatible with you. Right? I, I agree. So that, that lesson of learning, and that's, kind of an easily identifiable concept, uh, exists in a lot of fronts. Uh, it can exist in education. It can exist in the way you approach your job, your colleagues, your, your family. So it's a never-ending growth process. So you're talking about the, um, your journey through your Ph.D. It was a long process. Would you say that it was, I mean, this is a dumb question. This is, I like to say that this is like a John Madden statement while watching football. You know, John, <laughs> John Madden says the team with the most points at the end of the game is going to win the game. Yes, thank you, John. That's right. It yeah. is. But, I grew up in that generation. Too. <laughs> absolutely. So, yes, the Ph.D. was harder than the undergraduate and the graduate degree. But what, yeah. did, what did you learn about yourself in that, in, during that struggle versus the, you know, step in line, graduate high school, go to college, you, this is what you're supposed to do kind of struggle. What struggle did, what did you learn from in the struggle of trying to achieve such a higher degree of education? So I went about it completely incorrectly, right? So I'm going to pull back a little bit. And uh, be- before the end, by the way, don't let me forget to tell you mantra, life mantras one and two, Absolutely. which are also very good. Yeah, so I'm going to pull back a little bit and let you know that this emphasis on education and the desire to do really well and exceed as a student was was driven partly by my parents. Not that they had expectations for me to get, you know, all A's or anything, but they wanted me to be successful and and uh, use that success to help other people, right? So there's this undue pressure that I felt that I had, especially as a first-generation family, 
which translated into us being really strong academically, which is good. And I was honored and privileged to be valedictorian at Clinton High School. And I was even more honored and privileged to get a full scholarship to Vanderbilt. And I was good at Vanderbilt, too. And the reason why I was good at both of these institutions, high school and, and college, was because they were very structured programs. You go to class, you take exams, you get an A, and then it's done. I don't have to worry about heat transfer after I've taken the class. Right. More or less, right? right. Um, the point that I'm trying to make is I wasn't really there to learn for learning, the sake of learning, educating myself. I was there to prove to other people what I had done. And I talked about this a little bit in my TED Talk. And the realization of that didn't occur until you get to a program like a PhD, which is completely autonomous. Nobody cares if you graduate or not. Right. There's a portion of it that's coursework, and I did fine in that. But after that, it's all research and it's all you. And I was very naive about this because I was, a, I was kind of a rock star in high school. And I was a little bit less of a rock star in, in college, but I still graduated in the top 2.5% of the university. So I, I was highly desired as a graduate student because of this dossier that I had assembled. Right. And I didn't realize really that a PhD is a, it's a degree in, in true education and scientific um, dialogue. I mean, you're really pushing the envelope of a very, 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 very small component of a body of, of work. And if you're not dedicated and your fundamentals aren't good, then you're not going to be successful. You couple that with naivety. You couple that with some really catastrophic circumstances related to funding, my health, change of advisor, not having research funding, all these things. And you can you can understand how the, the PhD would basically feel as if you were living in the same the same year over and over again. Yeah. I felt like on September the 1st of every year or September the 20th, whenever the calendar year started at, the, at Northwestern, it would just be like, oh, man, what did I really accomplish this past year? Right. I've done a lot of mentoring. I've done a lot of volunteer work. I've done a lot of service to the university. I've done some teaching here and there. But where where is the research progression? Right. So there was a lot of stagnation, a lot of hate, self-hate, uh, humiliation, uh, imposter syndrome, just kind of feeling like I didn't belong. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the clock is ticking, right? They don't let you do a PhD forever. Right. So, I mean, I qualified uh, to be a candidate, which is the process after which you're working on a research project that you propose and is delineated as your thing. You know, after you become a candidate, you get a clock ticking. It's eight years from the day that you matriculated into the university. And I ended up taking 13. But I, I had to take some measures to get exceptions and extensions and run through some administrative hoops because of that. The university was very supportive and, and kind, and at the end of the day, I was able to persevere and get that through um, because I really did want the degree. I mean, at the very beginning, I just wanted to be called Dr. Gupta. Right. But at the end, you know, I really was very passionate about contributing to this field of science, and once you're in year six, you're in year seven, you're like, oh, am I really going to fold right now and throw in my hand and, and walk away from this table with nothing? Or am I going to just keep pressing? Because well, another thing people don't understand is when you tell them that you spent 13 years on a doctorate, they're like, why didn't you quit after year four? <laughs> because in year four, you don't think it's going to take you until year 13. And right. Neither do you think that in year eight. And neither do you think that in year 10. You're always thinking, hey, I'm right there on the cusp. Yeah. Um, and it's a good body of work. Like I've contributed a, a strong um, contribution to the field of material science and mechanical engineering. My subject area was... Uh, friction lubrication and wear of a surface coating that can be used compatibly in 
and automobile engines to extend the life of that engine. And it's a fairly novel approach to the body of work that's, that was in literature at the time. And it still probably could hold its own at several conferences. So, uh, you know, I'm very proud of being able to have done that contribution to science. But I'm equally proud of the ability to have persevered through considerable odds. Yeah. But here's where I touch back on my parents again and, and must honor them, is that without them having this, you know, extremely tough um, back problem situation, it was a chronic back condition I had, uh, other medical issues, um, funding was collapsed, you know, I had started playing poker in order to <laughs> make money on the side, which is a terrible, terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. You know, desperation desperation yeah. takes form in different people in different ways, right? right. And, and I didn't really know what to do. Part of that was trying to escape a bad circumstance, and how better do you do that than completely remove it from your mind by right. doing something else, which is equally devastating. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of trade-off, like, okay, I might as well go play a game of cards and forget about all this and then suddenly three months go by that's your own fault right right um which touches back on mantra number three exactly but but again my parents were there to to support and and help and certainly they were the the basic reason i was able to get these extensions was not because i was just sitting around playing ultimate frisbee all the time it was that i had legitimate reasons for needing more time and i had a extremely difficult case scenario, which a lot of the administrators really um, were empathetic of. And to this day, I'm extremely, extraordinarily appreciative of of having those people in my corner. So, you know, again, I'm extremely proud to have accomplished that level of science and be using my PhD now in my current uh, employment as a senior material scientist. But a lot of that credit and a lot of the reason why I'm standing to this day is is due to my mom and dad, right? But yeah. you don't have that support network. Uh, there's only so many times you can go to the assistant dean or the associate dean and say, hey, man, I need more help, right? At, at a certain point, it just becomes Parag's crying wolf. It doesn't matter how genuine you are or how genuine they think you are. Uh, at some point, they have to move on to higher level concerns. And I understand that. Right. So the student that just is unable to graduate from a university's perspective is, is not nearly as high of a um, person on the radar as somebody that has suicidal ideation or is struggling with sexual assault or massive depression or extreme, you know, behavioral issues, uh, alcoholism, what have you, those things can really, steal the life of a student. And unfortunately, you know, I saw some of that firsthand when I was an administrator at Columbia. Those things are very tough. And and when you're putting all that pressure on one office or one body of administrators, they have to pick and choose their priorities and the effort that they're going to be able to put into it because everybody's human and there's only 40 work hours in a week and you can't, you can't address the person that can't finish with the same priority as the person that's sitting in a hospital bed. Right. So, um, uh, but at the same time, I I did feel really loved at Northwestern. I still feel that way. It's a great institution, very supporting, and it will always remain dear to my heart, as well as Argonne National Laboratory that gave me the opportunity to have a guest appointment using their facilities for about a decade. So despite not having research 
resources or, or funding or some of these kind of languishing concerns that most PhD students have one major problem. Yeah. I had <laughs> 10 major problems. Yeah. And so for them to stick with me and, and also for the university to stick with me and, and my parents especially to stick with me and tell me it could be done was like a real big charge. And I, unfortunately, that doesn't happen to everybody. Yeah. And that's the reality of life. And people drop out of PhD programs for a plethora of reasons. And matriculation rates in this country from the entering of a PhD program to graduation is uh, somewhere between 40 and 50 percent, as far as I understand. So a lot of people are shocked to hear that. They're like, oh, you spent five years on PhD and didn't finish. And it's a lot more common than you think. Right. And, and um, I, you know, with you working in science, it's it's kind of it's kind of pleasant to see the human side of the student that's trying to you know get the x's and the o's and the numbers to line up and the physics and the you know the yeah. the, the variables that have no wiggle room the human element has that wiggle room and when you've got that support system sure. it, it it encourages others even you know those who are trying to pursue such a high level degree at such a competitive university all the way down to the the immigrant parents who've moved away from home and are just trying to make it on their own. Well, I'll tell you something. I'll tell you something, and, and you'll get this almost immediately. We're, we're kind of approaching middle age, right? Right. When you're, when you're 22, I refuse to believe that, but yes, you're right. <laughs> well, whatever it is. We're, we're, we're approaching the early onset stages of middle age. Let's there we go. There we go. But when you're, when you're 14, 15, all the way up to maybe 25, 26, 27, you don't understand that the people with whom you're interacting that are really adults, mm -hmm. the advisors and the administrators and your parents, have seen a lot. <laughs> like they've lived three times the amount of time minimally right. that you have. Absolutely. And they understand, they can see through some of the things that you think are uh, maybe a white lie or something. Like I'm not saying that I purposely went out there and misled anybody. I'm just saying that people know when there's something other than what you're presenting yourself right. um, going on, right? And so... If there's some legitimacy behind that, that, and you carry yourself genuinely, and, and you truly have a genuine problem, a lot of times you can just take a, a little bit of that stress off yourself and, and realize you don't have to constantly be going to somebody's office and apologizing. They know that problems don't dissipate in one day or one week or one month. Right. Um, and, and, and people are a lot more compassionate than, than we give them credit for, especially in academia. It seems. Mm -hmm. So cutthroat, you hear phrases like publish or perish and, you know, put out or get out. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, there is that side of it, of course, and there are terrible in instances of advisor-advisee uh, relationships that weren't good. But I was very fortunate, the person that was my dissertation committee chair and, and the person that took me on as a student um, when I switched groups after my third year was one of the most compassionate and genuine people I've ever met. And I had... I put him at the ranking of my own father and mother in the sense that he really gave me a true shot yeah. um, at, at realizing what I could potentially be. And all of this experience in graduate school informed my decision to want to be that same advocate or pillar of support for other students in a university environment. And I got that opportunity at Columbia. But reflecting back, you know, one of the more difficult parts of that job for me was was taking those students home in my pocket with me. So I could not leave work with a student that wasn't communicating back to me because they were going through extremely traumatic emotional circumstances, right? I, and I 
in that sense, I wasn't well equipped for it because I had a PhD in engineering and I was helping run an engineering transfer program. But at the end of the day, my, my heart was beating with the 5% of students that were just not getting things done uh, because of circumstances that in a lot of situations they weren't able to control. Right. And so it was emotionally heavy for me. And I, I didn't stay there as long as I, I wanted to. Um, and so it wasn't a perfect fit. And when you realize those things, you you pick up those lessons and right. you, you move to the next opportunity. I'll say Actually, mo- mantra number three, you, you learn back from home. it. Yeah, right. And, and, and certainly, you know, you don't do things perfectly as, as an administrator either. I, I probably could have focused more on some cases. I could have probably presented myself better in, in other cases, right? Uh, but I, I like to think that I was genuine, and despite any mistakes, you know, you learn and you grow, and you right. try and do better the next day. I even find that so, myself as an educator. I try to remember that when I was hired as a 24-year-old English teacher, that I was not the 28, 29, 30-year veteran that I was used to. I had to start my journey, and I was not being put out there as a machine. I was being put out there as one, as a fellow going along the path with my students. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you what, I, this is a good time to interject with mantras one and two, because yeah. <laughs> mantra number one is be kind and be genuine. And yeah. I, I've, I, you know, I've always tried to be that my entire life. I, I come in a little bit hot, which means I, I have a very strong personality, and I know that, at least in first impressions, not everybody is super taken with me. I get that. It's I think you're great. well known to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but we've never met in person. Right, but still, you have a strong personality. Um, I do, too, and so they drive well. Yeah, no, I understand that, and I appreciate that. But I, coupled with that, I just I want to always be genuine, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not even tell or make a statement that, that's um, – that's not not full of uh, genuine love and, and appreciation and kindness. And I, I very much live by that element of do unto others mm-hmm. um, as you would like done done to you. And, you know, living in such a strong Christian environment uh, in Mississippi, it's one of the greatest elements of Mississippianism, I guess, yeah. if you want to <laughs> make that term. You can. Shakespeare uh, invented too many one. words. You can do the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> and that's a, that's a very strong... Uh, a character trait of the of the state and the people that live in it, um, for the most part. Yeah. Obviously, again, we we have a bad reputation in, in some areas for good reason. Right. But I, I do think that where we live specifically was was based on that foundation of of that mantra, and I I appreciate that. And the second, I think, which um, is more akin to the the problems that I had in graduate school, and I'm stealing this completely from Reddit. Um, I don't know if you go on Reddit. <laughs> the gospel of Reddit, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, yes. So the, my, my second one is, is no zero days, right? There's, yeah. uh, there was a very famous story about a Redditor posting saying that he was depressed and another one came in, and you know how the voting system works. And this one's like one of the highest rated comments of all time. And he said, the way, way I live my life is by this philosophy of no zero days, where it doesn't matter what you did today. Tomorrow you have to do that plus right. something, yeah. right? So if your zero day was not getting out of bed because you had a back problem and you didn't have breakfast or you missed picking up your kid and had to call them a taxi or something, the next day, you know, change one of those three things. Right. Get out of bed, take a shower, have breakfast, <laughs> or make sure you go pick up your kid. Right. Hopefully it's the third one. 
But my point is, you prioritize the thing that was most important that you still could accomplish reasonably and make sure that you make the progression in that way that you couldn't have otherwise thought you could do. And that's how we become better people and more mature people and progress to a higher level of understanding of ourselves. It's to make sure that the next day is better for not only you, but for the people that you're surrounded by and the people that love you and the community that embraces you to try and move things forward. Yeah, if you couple all of these or bring all three of these mantras together, I think one could live kind of a wholesome life mm -hmm. um, in a very easy way. So everybody's zero is completely different. Yeah. The heroin addict zero is much different than the senior material scientist zero, which is different than the PhD student zero. Yeah. But no, but I, I mean, I certainly had uh, issues where I was tackling stuff that was outside of the work environment. Mm -hmm. right? And certainly those types of things can be devastating mm -hmm. if you can't make a step to make it better, at least, or contained or moderated. And, and in, in most cases, people would say, well, you're still a complete failure. But guess what? You're doing something that only you can control, which is the life that you live, the soul in which you embody. Yeah. Right? And uh, that definition for yourself has to be fully realized within yourself. You have to own your own actions in order to improve your own quality of life. Matt. Nobody's going to hand you the key. Yeah. I think, I think these broad principles, like we were just talking about earlier about being individuals and, and blanket policy doesn't help. I, I think, I think we've just kind of circled back around and seen the, the dark side of the moon there and, and seen that this broad policy, this, this idea, it can help each individual as long as the individual takes a responsibility on himself or herself. And again, like you said, no zero days, moves forward and changes something for the positive in the next day. Thank somebody else that's helped you go along, use what you've learned from yeah. them and help somebody else. Yeah, it's a, it's a pay it forward, thank, you know, thank backwards. I, if I may, I, I will yeah. tell you that this Halloween, I, I win as, yeah, I feel like on Halloween you should always dress as your heroes. <laughs> yeah. And one of the greatest people that's always, that's ever lived, in my opinion, hands down, period, was a gentleman named Fred Rogers. And I talked about him in my TEDx talk, and I, I literally, honestly, don't think there's been a greater, more genuine, heartfelt, caring man that I have ever witnessed in my life. Right? Mm -hmm. and we all yeah. grew up with him, and yeah. he's literally impacted the positive upbringing of a billion children. I'm not even exaggerating. So, yeah. you know, 30 years on television, uh, the whole generation of the late 70s, 80s, 90s, and then not only in the United States, but all around the country. To me, he's as impactful as in the positive positivity of humanity as Norman Burlog was in agriculture, for yeah. example. So, or Jonas Salk in terms of medicine. My point in bringing this up was you, you, you said take that time to thank somebody. And when, when Mr. Rogers won this Lifetime Achievement Award, I think it was maybe at the Emmys or maybe it was the daytime Emmys or something like that. You know, he very humbly, you know, walked to stage. Obviously, there was a standing ovation by all of these Hollywood go-getters and A-list celebrities and blah, blah, blah. And he very simply went to the stage, showed his appreciation, thanked his wife, expressed genuine um, gratitude. And then he, he asked the audience to do something with him, which was, you know, to, let's together take 10 seconds, just 10 seconds right now um, to, of silence and, and think about the people or people, the person or people who have helped you 
become exactly who you are today. Right. And so there was a little bit of snickering right at the beginning. Right. He actually like looked at his watch and he counted down 10 seconds and, you know, five seconds in, it was absolutely dead silent. And then he waited another five seconds. And, and as soon as he was done looking at his watch, he, he said something to the fact that, uh, you know, how wonderful and how, how grateful those people would feel to know uh, that you thought of them today in that way. And it's just a heartbreakingly uh, wonderful pause that I, it was so compassionate, you know, that he really got an entire audience of people that were going to go get hammered in four hours or whatever yeah. as soon as the show ended, brought them back down to earth and said, hey, man, let's take a moment to think about the fact that you're, you're here because of somebody else's right. sacrifice or somebody right. else's advocacy or somebody else's, you know, good. And and there's that humanity in us that he was able to recognize instantaneously. And usually when I tell this story, it usually brings me to tears to some extent. Uh, yeah. And I was thinking about it all day at work while I was wearing this cardigan and this hat um, <laughs> and trying to pretend to be my hero and just realizing that, hey, the reality of it is, is that I will never be as good as him but at least I can be as good as Parag can be. Yeah. And that, that in itself has a decent amount of uh, sobering calmness to it um, because we're not all perfect. No. And it, I would be, we would be very hard-pressed to produce another Fred Rogers, but hopefully that individual is out there and is looking down at us. And in the meantime, um, I hope we can all embrace a little bit of Mr. Rogers and, and us every day. You know, all of these things that he taught us on TV are, are reflected in these mantras. It's reflected in the way that I look at things now. I'm not perfect. I didn't do everything perfect at Vanderbilt. I didn't do everything perfect at Northwestern. I didn't do everything perfect at Columbia. I didn't do everything perfect even in the job that I'm working right now. But I have to have the reflection, the understanding that I I can do better in certain areas and do better where I, I know that I'm capable of doing better. I'm really glad we got to talk tonight. <laughs> Me too. This, this is, has been fantastic. This and, is. It's a, you, know, you know, middle of the week. It's supposed to be the, you know, hump day. Let's just get over through the Wednesday. But no, like I want to, I want to wake up tomorrow. I want to, I want to attack Thursday hard tomorrow. Like I, do. I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> well, but I want to do it. Just make, make it a no zero day. Absolutely. Right? So, if you're if you're zero days just going to work and then doing your journalism club after and yeah. picking up your kids, taking them home, having yeah. dinner with the wife and, and going to bed, maybe your plus one will be, uh, you know, spending a little bit more time as a family at the dinner table instead of rushing off to soccer practice yep. or dance lessons yep. and reading an extra Bible verse or yep. spending, you know, an extra 10 minutes with with your son or daughter reading their favorite Curious George book. Um just something that, that will be a positive impact or something that brings you joy. It doesn't always have to be a selfless act. Right. It just can be something that makes you stronger because even those acts that people think are self selfish, like having a glass of wine, maybe that comes back tenfold in, in terms of the relief and the, and the kind of relaxation that affords you the conversation that you're able to have with your wife during that time. And it makes you a better father because you've had that opportunity to connect with with your spouse. So there's goodness in, in things that people don't always say are are great. Yeah. Um, but you've got to do you. I agree. <laughs> and it all comes back to the what people say these days, right? You've yeah. got to live your best life. And Absolutely. I think that's, that's a good way to do it. 
I mentioned earlier that Dr. Parag Gupta spoke at a TEDx event at Northwestern University. It's worth watching, trust me. Check out our new website, hairpinmedia.com, where you'll be able to find a link to Dr. Gupta's TEDx talk, as well as links to other episodes and notes on my time with my guests. This podcast is a production of Hairpin Media and is put together and hosted by me, Robert Chapman. If you know someone who has a really cool story, hit me up on Twitter at Chapman Robert. Special thanks goes to Dr. Parag Gupta for playing phone tag with me and for spending an evening on the phone where he taught me the importance of no zero days. He's going to say he stole it, but I'm stealing it from him. So thank you, good doctor. Our theme song is Naked and Red by Color Revolt. If you've enjoyed the journey, subscribe and share what you've heard and be sure to leave us a review. Be on the lookout for more and keep your heads up for your own chances to meet anyone you can from who's who to who's that. 